States, pretty much continuously from its founding in 1776 until 1917, Congress had to give the okay on every individual debt the government wanted to issue. In practice, this meant that Congress would need to pass legislation for almost everything the government wanted to pay for, and that meant typically paying for them with money earned through bonds, which are debt instruments sold by the government to fund things. And that meant at the time there was a lot less money flowing through the government, but it also inherently limited the sorts of things that could be funded to begin with. Because rather than the treasury being able to issue debt when it made sense to do so, to pay for existing programs or new ones that some facet of the government wanted to implement, they would instead need to get permission from Congress, and then a successful piece of legislation would need to be passed for each and every new or recurring bit of money raising. A super tedious way of managing finances that made a lot more sense in the early days of the nation, but a lot less with every year that passed because of how limited the government inherently was with their hands tied in this way, and because of how other aspects of the government and the funding of the government evolved over time. In 1917, though, in the midst of World War I, Congress passed the Second Liberty Bond Act, which gave the U.S. Treasury more leeway to basically spend what they wanted on whichever projects and priorities made sense as long as they didn't go over a congressionally approved limit. This limit, often called the debt limit or debt ceiling, also had sub-limits within the larger overall limit as to how much of that total spending could be derived from different categories of debt, like bonds or treasury bills. That segmentation was removed with the passing of the Public Debt Act in 1939, and the Public Debt Act of 1941 raised that now non-segmented limit to $65 billion. So that was the overall cap on the amount of debt that could be issued by the U.S. Treasury, and they could now use whichever instruments they thought made the most sense when issuing debt, rather than being artificially limited to just a certain amount of bonds and treasuries and bills and securities and so on. Most years following that second public debt act, this debt ceiling was increased, and it eventually reached $300 billion by 1945, before being reduced by the Public Debt Act of 1946, down to $275 billion. It stayed at that level until 1954, at which point it began an upward trajectory once more. In the 20th century alone, the debt ceiling was increased about 90 times, depending on which increases via which mechanisms we choose to measure. The U.S. Treasury only officially tallies 78 increases since 1960, and that ceiling was raised 18 times during the administration of the conservative President Ronald Reagan, eight times during liberal President Bill Clinton's administration, seven times under conservative George W. Bush, and 11 times under liberal Barack Obama. 
This isn't a Republican or Democratic thing, then, to raise the debt limit. It's just a thing. And it's a thing that is arguably necessary for the continuing operation of the U.S. government because of the increasing scale of the government, the increasing scale of the U.S. economy, which means more tax income for the government and thus more debt that it can ostensibly at least safely handle, and because of things like inflation, which means a billion dollars a decade ago went further than a billion dollars today. Most modern countries do not have a debt ceiling. Other than the United States and Denmark, in fact, no other democratic country in the world has such a mechanism in place. The original idea behind this limit, in the U.S. at least, was to prevent the president from becoming a spendy king or dictator, someone who could sell as much debt as they wanted, bankrupt the nation, and assume total power by spending the unearned wealth around. That was pretty much the guiding fear of all U.S. policies at the time, so it makes sense that Congress wanted to put some limitations on the head of the executive branch to ensure nobody got any bright ideas about seizing control monetarily in the nation's early days. But today, Congress passes a very comprehensive budget that says exactly how much the government can spend and how much it will collect in taxes to account for that spending. The Treasury Department only sells debt that Congress says it can. This is why many people argue that the debt ceiling today is an unnecessary anachronism. It's useful in some cases for political grandstanding, especially for folks who are keen to reduce overall debt and government spending for various practical and ideological reasons. But it doesn't really serve a purpose beyond periodically bringing the U.S. debt level into the public's consciousness, typically because we are about to hit this arguably arbitrary ceiling. And if we do so, that would cause a variety of issues, ranging from the inconvenient and embarrassing to the borderline cataclysmic and potentially quite long-lasting. What I'd like to talk about today is the most recent iteration of a U.S. debt ceiling crisis and why this new episode of a familiar show is being seen as a bit more pressing than others in recent memory. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled GOP Senators Block Democratic Bill to Fund Government and Suspend Debt Ceiling. A quick note before I jump in here that this is a very fast-moving story, collection of stories, really. And there's a very good chance that some or many of the elements and specifics will have changed by the time this episode goes live. So I'll be giving some outlines of what's happening right now and why things seem to be happening as they are, but I'll mostly be focusing on more evergreen information that will continue to be relevant to this topic rather than the moment-to-moment horse-racy elements of this facet of contemporary political discourse. Now that said, as I mentioned in the intro, the debt ceiling is the hard cap on how much debt the U.S. government can issue to pay for primarily existing financial obligations. 
Things like social security benefits, salaries for military personnel, tax refunds, and payments on the national debt. If this limit is reached, the Treasury has what are called extraordinary measures they can leverage to conserve money and draw things out a little bit further, suspending the sale of new securities and pausing investments in certain funds can help them last a bit longer before actually hitting that cap. The current U.S. debt limit, as I record this episode, is about $28.5 trillion. That's objectively a lot of money, but it's also not stratospheric for a country as large and wealthy as the United States, which has a lot of programs and international efforts and bureaucracy to fund. If the U.S. government hits this ceiling and isn't able to stretch things far enough to keep spending under it until a solution can be reached, usually in the form of a debt ceiling increase passed by Congress, the U.S. government could start defaulting on its debts. And that's something that hasn't ever happened in the U.S., not on scale, and not intentionally, at least. There have been a few cases in the past where discussions and debate about the debt ceiling have extended until the very last moment, and then glitches or slowdowns in the payment systems have caused those approved-at-the-last-moment payments to be technically late. But those instances, while not ideal, are not typical, and they do not represent a crisis. To actually default... To not pay our debt in a more substantial and real way would be pretty bad. Bad in the sense of likely sparking a legit financial crisis, one that would significantly hurt people and businesses and organizations in the U.S., but also because of how much U.S. debt is held globally, it generally being considered to be one of the most stable places to store value, and because of how many other entities are in some way connected to the U.S. and the U.S.'s economy, this would be a financial crisis that would almost certainly cascade outward to encompass essentially the entire globe as well. So in addition to military personnel not being paid, people who rely on social security not being able to pay their rent and their bills because they wouldn't be getting those payments from the government, and food assistance benefits and other such safety net measures disappearing overnight, unemployment in the U.S. would likely skyrocket, with some estimates saying that 6 million jobs would disappear entirely, about $15 trillion of household wealth could be wiped out and the U.S. government would almost certainly lose its highest of the high debt rating, which would significantly impact both the soft financial power that the U.S. wields internationally and the government's ability to confidently sell debt in the future to fund things like military conflicts, but also infrastructural upgrades and things like that. It would cost more to get the same amount of money in the future for the U.S. government because it wouldn't be considered such a secure, sure thing by folks buying up that debt as it is now. The dominant perception of this limit in political circles seems to be that it is a useful point of leverage for the folks not currently in political power to use against those who are. The threat to not increase the debt limit when necessary, and it's very regularly necessary, can allow those not in power to get concessions from those who are, because those who are in power will likely be blamed 
for the repercussions of hitting the ceiling and are almost always the target of negative press when this issue comes to the journalistic forefront. And I want to emphasize one more time that both parties do this. So while any individual instance of debt ceiling negotiation might seem like one party or the other being cynical and brazen, it's something that both parties and all types of politicians have dabbled in and used at some point, and often quite enthusiastically. That's why the debt ceiling in some circles has come to be perceived as less of a serious threat and more of a high-stakes game of political chicken. The consequences of not raising it would be so economically catastrophic to the point that no one seriously thinks the other side will stay the course and force that kind of self-destruction. But the possibility that someone will someday be that crazy, make that kind of calculation and follow through with it is ever-present. So it's never really thought to be a certain doom sort of variable, and instead is thought of the same way you might think about a large asteroid that has a 1 in 10,000 chance of hitting Earth. It probably won't happen, but it would be a very big deal if it did, so you can't afford to completely discount it as a consequence just in case. That Wall Street Journal piece is about the current, as I record this, episode of this ongoing will-they-won't-they-destroy-the-country's-economy drama, this time around, featuring the Democrats in office controlling a slim majority of Congress and controlling the White House, but not having enough power to easily force things like this through without some Republican support. And the Republicans, this time, are in the role of threat-leveling, chicken-playing, I'll-blow-it-all-up-if-you-don't-give-me-what-I-want chaos agent. Confounding the issue, this time around, is the Democratic Party's desire to pass a flurry of other money-related legislation, including a very large infrastructure bill, which is meant to be a centerpiece of President Biden's policy framework which would follow an earlier, also quite large, COVID relief bill. The Democrats already tried to pass legislation that would fund the government and raise the debt ceiling. But Republicans said, nope, we're not going to help with that debt ceiling thing. You'll need to figure out a means of doing it yourself. Further complexifying the situation is a rift within the Democratic Party between further left progressive members and more centrist or even right-leaning members, all of whom have come into conflict recently about how much money these packages should contain, how they should be passed, and how they should be bundled and presented to make them happen, considering the obstructionist nature of the current Republican congressional lineup and the vibe of the U.S. public overall. All of which is to say, this is often a complicated dance, getting the debt ceiling raised, but it's a bit more complicated right now because, frankly, everything in the world is more complicated because of the pandemic and climate change and other such uncertainty-amplifying variables but also because folks running governments during such periods of uncertainty are especially keen to both maintain the power they have and, while they can, grab more power at a moment in which their opposition might be especially vulnerable. We're also at a strange moment in which the previous Republican president, Donald Trump, lost his chance to have another four years in office. So the spending that he did and the debt accrued by all that spending 
which was substantial compared to most other recent administrations, in large part due to tax cuts that he wanted for wealthy Americans, all of that now falls on the shoulders of the opposing party. So the Republicans have an opportunity here to foist the responsibility, the bill essentially, for their party's spending, which was higher than average, onto the shoulders of their opposition, which is a very tantalizing and rare opportunity. Consequently, they've been saying that they won't support a simple measure to increase the debt limit, and in fact, they will filibuster Democratic efforts to do so, which would force the Democrats to take a different filibuster-immune route called reconciliation that will occupy their time and attention for weeks and will leave them less able to use the same tool for other priorities that they've been hoping to get past this ongoing Republican legislation-disrupting wall. To be clear, similar, if not identical, showdowns have happened previously. Former President George W. Bush faced opposition from Democrats in raising the debt ceiling in 2006. And they said, basically, he was just spending the country into oblivion with wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, so they wouldn't help. But they didn't filibuster a vote to up the ceiling, and Republicans were able to pass the higher limit using the normal voting process. Also important to note here is that neither party in recent decades has passed a budget that would drop spending to what the country can afford without taking on new debt, much less to a point where we could someday pay off all the existing debt anytime in the near future. So accusations in either direction, claiming that one or the other party is substantially better or worse with money, are fairly difficult to back up with actual evidence. They are all accumulating more debt, not reducing it. Some financial analysts have said that this standoff is more volatile than the others because of those aforementioned environmental variables and because political parties at this moment both feel that they have a lot to prove. And because of that, there's even more posturing than usual, which is saying something. And leaders from both parties have been largely talking past each other, making negotiations incredibly difficult or even impossible because both hope to tie this problem perceptually to the other party. Thus, although it is still assumed that the government will figure something out, one political risk consultant working with the Eurasia Group recently told his clients that there's a one in five chance that this won't be resolved and the many cascading horrible things that would result from a default could actually happen and they should be prepared if that ends up being the case. Now the debt limit technically already got close to hitting this ceiling at the end of July. That was when the extension that Congress agreed to in 2019 ended But the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been keeping things going since then, using those aforementioned extraordinary measures to stave off a default. A recent estimate by the Bipartisan Policy Center says that the U.S. government will likely run out of money sometime between October 15th and November 4th. Though it's more difficult to make accurate estimates of this kind right now because of all the pandemic relief money that's been put into circulation and the associated uncertainty about how much tax revenue will end up in government coffers this fall. So that could be an under or an over estimation. 
as is often the case when we reach this kind of standoff, which is used as a political football by some, but seen as a ridiculous antique that inexplicably still exists by others, a lot of potential solutions are being tossed around, some more likely and more desirable than others. The government could just try to do away with the debt limit, but what's generally prevented this in the past is that there doesn't seem to be a clear next-step way of managing debt if we were to do so. Denmark, that other rare democratic country with this type of ceiling, solved this problem by basically just setting their limit so high that it will never become an issue. That allows the limit to still exist and keeps the number of changes necessary to prevent the worst effects of such a limit negligible. Some politicians and analysts have suggested that this might be the most straightforward path to getting rid of these persistent showdown scenarios, while others have said it might be better to just pass legislation that says when we bump up against the ceiling, it will be automatically increased to somewhere above that new debt level. It's also been posited that the president could just invoke the 14th Amendment, which says, among other things, that the validity of public debt in the U.S. shall not be questioned, and that by doing so, the president would nullify the debt ceiling, an option that would almost certainly be tossed around in the court system for years, but which could provide at least a short-term solution and prevent the worst possible consequences of default in the meantime slightly less dramatic, would be issuing a new class of bond that would allow the government to continue issuing debt even when treasury bonds of the traditional sort are off the table for debt ceiling-related legal reasons. Or they could use the reconciliation process, while they have the Senate numbers to do so, to eliminate the debt ceiling and just be done with it. As I mentioned before, this is considered by the Democrats to be non-ideal at this moment, as there are only so many reconciliation processes they can use per budget cycle, and taking that path would not look as good politically as passing it via normal processes. There's a lot of spin the Republicans could whip up to make it look like the Democrats were getting rid of the debt ceiling, which is something most people don't understand, so that they could go on a spending spree, whether or not that actually ended up being the case and whether or not that actually made any sense. This would also apparently take quite a while to finish up, and there's a chance that this route would leave the U.S. prone to default in the short term, with untold consequences, even if they would eventually fix the issue for good longer term. Even a gap of just a few weeks, during which the U.S. is defaulting on its debt, would not be good. One of the more interesting potential solutions, and this also tends to get a lot of press every time this issue hits the front page of newspapers again, is minting what's often called the coin. The idea here is that because of truly bizarre and old rules, the U.S. Treasury can issue platinum coins of literally any value. Paper currency is far more restricted than coins limited to $300 million because of a rule that was put into place in the 19th century, and coins made of other substances are also limited in terms of available denomination options, so you can't just make up a new face value on the fly. But a platinum coin is all-powerful. According to these old, weird laws, specifically U.S. Code Section 5112K on the denominations, specifications, and design of coins, and thus, if they so desired, they could issue a platinum coin worth $100, 
one million dollars, a Googleplex of dollars, or perhaps something more practical, like a trillion or two trillion dollars. An idea posited back in 2010 and then revived to specifically apply to the debt ceiling in 2011 is that the Treasury Secretary could issue a single platinum coin worth $2 trillion, deposit that coin in the Treasury's account at the Fed, and then use those funds, $2 trillion, to keep the government operational until the debt ceiling standoff could be handled. This would be a practically unlimited source of financial flex in the system. As the cost of issuing coins of this kind, however many are needed, however many times over the years, would be negligible, and it would allow the government to stay operational, never face the truly worst-case default-related scenarios, while still maintaining the current system, which allows those in government to not have to worry about coming up with something better before being able to move on the huge vulnerability that arguably only exists because no one has figured out how to get rid of it yet. This concept, though originally posited by someone not in the government, has been taken seriously enough that the folks in charge, from the former head of the U.S. Mint to a Republican senator who tried to pass legislation to close this loophole to the current Fed chair, all have said something along the lines of, yeah, that would actually almost certainly work. The main thing that prevented former President Barack Obama from using it as a tool to end his own debt-related showdown in 2011 was that he thought the idea was so, quote, wacky that he couldn't even seriously consider it from an optics perspective. And truly, if such a measure was ever used, even though it would be somewhat poetic in that it would be an invented, relatively meaningless, symbolic financial solution for bypassing an invented, relatively meaningless, symbolic financial barrier, it would seem very strange and a little funny and possibly politically non-ideal for whichever party or politician or politician opted to use it. And though some people argue that issuing such a coin would increase inflation and cause other similar ripples. Several economists have demonstrated why this almost certainly wouldn't be the case. Issuing such a coin would be more like moving money from one part of the government to another than creating money out of thin air, and would potentially even have a deflationary effect, at least compared to the consequences we would see from a default situation. If you're interested in digging into the weeds on that, by the way, I will link to what is considered to be the definitive paper on this subject in the show notes. It's pretty interesting if you don't mind wading through a lot of legal arguments and numbers. All that said, the odds still favor a non-irregular, non-funny coin-related way of moving forward from this standoff. And that almost certainly means more of the same last-minute political solutions. And, unfortunately, another showdown when we go over this whole collection of complexities and concerns once more. The book I'd like to recommend today is called An Ugly Truth. Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination by Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. This is a very timely book to read, especially if you are keen to understand more of the foundational 
philosophical underpinnings of Facebook as a company and the people behind it and some of the things that led it to become the company that it is today. And that's true right now as a slew of new reports have come out about this company and things that they know and when they've known it and things they've lied about. But I suspect it will remain true for the foreseeable future because this is indeed such a sprawling and influential company. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of An Ugly Truth by Shira Frankel and Cecilia Kang. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.